Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with Statisticians Without Borders founder Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude, a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. Today, we step off camera and pull in Dr. Samantha Anderson, who is a quantitative psychologist at Arizona State University and is an expert in all things related to the so-called replication crisis. Out of fear of replicating our own ignorance, we are uncharacteristically quiet while Samantha talks about the past, present, and future of replicability in the social sciences. Along the way, we also discuss Ask Sammy, Bioluminescence, Cheat Day, podcast pre-registration, music that makes you younger, DEFCON 5, or maybe one, uh, we'll go with three, mother-in-laws, air quotes, and the queen of the world. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, so I have The Hypocrisy, where one of my most hated movies also has one of my favorite scenes where Woody Allen pulls in the philosopher to tell the blowhard that he's completely wrong. I think we should pull in our philosopher. What do you say? We have a philosopher, an actual philosopher here, (laughs) standing in the wings. We have off camera, which is odd Uh because we don't have any cameras, but (laughs) off camera, yes, Uh we have our philosopher. So I'm going to step out of the shot and pull in Dr. Samantha Anderson, who is going to talk to me as a blowhard and you as a neurotic and correct everything that we've said about Bayesian model-based inference P-values, power, family-wise error rates, MANOVA. <laughs> this is going to be a pretty long episode. Wow. Settle in. Yep. I hope you've got snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Samantha. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, these are big shoes to fill with all these topics, but they're all topics that I love. So, <laughs> Excellent. Well, very briefly, as we pull her into the camera shot... <laughs> Samantha is an assistant professor in quant psych at Arizona State University. She got a bachelor's in psych at Wisconsin, a master's in clinical at Notre Dame, and then a PhD in quant psych at Notre Dame under who I think is one of the titans in quant and just being a human being, which is Scott Maxwell. You started as an assistant professor at ASU, and correct me if I'm wrong, but today you submitted your third year review materials. I did. So to celebrate, we're going to have you correct everything that we've talked about over the last several episodes. But as we will see, Samantha has interests in all sorts of very cool things related to incredibly important stuff that we all do and that we've argued about on prior episodes. Power, p-values, type 1 error rates. What we hope we can puzzle through with you a little bit today is replicability and the replication crisis. I'm not ready for that yet, Patrick. Okay. I need to know two things from you. One is the short version of your origin story. Like how the heck did you want to become a quantitative methodologist? Mm. I think that's important. I'll let you start with that. Then I'll do the other thing. So like many people coming out of undergrad, I didn't know that there was such a thing as quantitative psychology. And it turns out that my undergrad institution, uh, Wisconsin, has a great quant program. However, it's in a separate building from the rest of psychology. And so I didn't (laughs) know it existed. So I go to Notre Dame. At this point, I do not know that Scott Maxwell is a famous quantitative psychologist. I just know that he's teaching a grad stats class and I want to get out of it. (laughs) (laughs) because I think I've already taken grad stats. I want to get through the clinical program. I know it's a long program. And so I try to convince him that I don't need his class. (laughs) Uh, He makes me take the exam. And he actually told me I did pretty well on it. I got an A (laughs) minus without Mm -hmm. having taken the class, but he encouraged me to take the class anyway. And I'm Really glad I did because that's where I became interested in replication. And it wasn't until about a year later where I was sitting in my clinical office hours with three clients that hadn't shown up for their sessions. And Mm -hmm. I was asked to be the TA for the intro stats sequence. And Scott had written, but if you're doing your clinical work, there's really not enough time with all your hours of supervision. And I thought, well, I really want to do this. I almost fell out of my chair. And so that was kind of the moment where I had already realized that I really loved thinking about methods and being more behind the scenes in the design of experiments. 
Mm-hmm. It was kind of that moment that I made the decision to see if I could switch over. And also, I had recently attended a conference where someone was presenting on a design with five participants and showing these bar graphs and making these big generalizations based on these five participants about differences among the groups. And I was just kind of cringing. And I thought, maybe we need some more people on these types of topics. Maybe I could cringe for a living. (laughs) I was lucky enough that I was already at a school that happened to have a quant program. um, Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of snuck on over, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully unnoticed. (laughs) That was a good experience. Mm. We're glad you did sneak over. My other question then is, tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with any of this, just so we can get a fuller sense of you. Ooh, that's a really good question. Tattoos, Uh, prison time, those are standard responses. uh, I guess a fun fact is uh, when I was growing up, I was a theater kid. So nothing related to math or statistics at all. And I was on a regional television show about the outdoors where I was Ask Sammy. And (laughs) kids would write in questions each week about the outdoors and animals and species in the Midwest. And I would go to different parks around the state and do little segments answering their questions. Oh, how do we not use that, Patrick? Okay, I'll tell you how we are going to use that. We're not today going to talk about the replication crisis. (laughs) I would like to hear your professional opinion on cow tipping. (laughs) I did not do an episode on cow tipping, but I did do uh, water conservation and uh, bioluminescent species. In mm. Wisconsin? It was on Firefly. So, uh, <laughs> right. Algae. I think there was a question about like an invasive type of algae in Lake Michigan. Hmm. All right. Yeah, so a very different kind of experience there, but it was too long ago for me to really remember. Uh, yeah, nice claim. <laughs> Whatever. Details. Yeah, too long ago. But I do love the origin story of the serendipity of you. Whoops, sorry. I had my feet up on my desk and I just kicked off a bunch. And <laughs> that's my... Run, right, Samantha, run. Hang on a second. What's no, going on? this is cool. That was a fire alarm. That's your that... I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. What we were talking about, cow tipping. Um, I love the origin story in the class you tried to get out of is from one of the most important people on the face of the planet in quantitative. I had no idea who he was, and I'm I'm embarrassed <laughs> at this point. Uh... The topic that we needed to pull her in on from all the meanderings that we had has to do with, well, you know, the replication crisis, which is very hard to say without doing air quotes. That's a big Pandora's box of things to open and talk about. So if we're going to just crack the lid a little bit, where would you start us off? Well, there's two places that we could start. Mm -hmm. We could start with the definition. Mm -hmm. How do we think about what a replication is? Are there failures to replicate? How does that differ from reproducibility? Mm -hmm. Or we could start with the start of the crisis or the foundations I actually vote for the first one leading into the second one so that we all have the same language to start off with. Followed by cow tipping. Yes. So I think Ken Bowen was the one who wrote that the more we look at replication, the harder it is to define what it means to replicate. Mm -hmm. I think when people first start thinking about it, they have this sort of layperson definition of, oh, the findings are the same. If we repeat the study, it should be the same. But then when we start to really think carefully about what we're really talking about, how we define what the same means and what different means Mm -hmm. has not been very clear throughout the literature. And I think that's led to some of this debate back and forth as we're trying to figure out what we expect to happen Mm -hmm. and how we should really treat these replication studies. So there have been a lot of like taxonomies that have come out to try to sort of categorize different types of replications, different analyses we can use for replication, Mm -hmm. different ways to uh, assign success to a replication. And I think those are fairly helpful in sort of organizing what's going on with the quote crisis. 
but it's difficult to sort of agree on a single definition. So what do you work with as a definition as best you can, and how do you differentiate it from reproducibility? So reproducibility, I like to think of that as being more within the same data set, can we reproduce someone's analysis? Mm -hmm. So I think that comes in more with uh, sort of publishing your code, for example, or publishing your syntax and and your data, sort of the open science, and and we can get into that. But the idea is within this single data set, can I recreate your results? Mm -hmm. And I think replication usually is taken as a different data set, a different set of researchers typically with a new sample may or may not be the same population, may or not may not be the same setting, but trying to recreate a previous study in a future study. So you did use air quotes when you said crisis. <laughs> I saw you. Why? <laughs> so I used air quotes not because I don't think there's a crisis, But because I'm willing to be at the middle of the road between the people who are flailing their arms, like screaming, saying psychology should just shut down as a science because Mm -hmm. nothing replicates and this is awful, versus the people who say, oh, everything's fine, we should just keep going as we are. So I like the term replication crisis because it's really fun to put into articles and it makes people really interested and pay attention. And I think it's brought about a lot of issues that we need to talk about as a field, but it's a little bit dramatic. So I think it is some sort of crisis, but perhaps the term has been a little bit overused. Is the replication crisis a really good demonstration of what statistical power is? Well, it's certainly involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the earliest discussions of replication focused more on false positives, uh, sort of the p-hacking, researcher degrees of freedom issues, which mm-hmm. we can also talk a lot about. But power has really come in the the late stages of talking about the crisis in that not only are replication studies often underpowered, but part of the issue stems from the original studies that we're trying to replicate themselves being underpowered. And Hedges has shown with certain types of replication that the original study can be extremely limiting into how far you can power the replication study. So even if you are doing your very best to do an a priori power analysis, you can only go so far with certain types of replication if you only have a single replication study. And my own work has similarly shown that oftentimes a very underpowered original study will necessitate some sort of sample size that's almost infinite in some cases, or will even basically say that given all of the sampling error in this original study, given the problem of publication bias, it's possible that this study doesn't even have a real effect. The effect size is possibly zero. And then where do you go from there when you're trying to power your study? So I think statistical power, it's much broader than replication, but it's certainly been one of the bases for the lack of replication. First of all, just to clarify, when you say the original study was underpowered, you mean generally they found something, but they didn't appear to have levels of power that we would otherwise plan for? Yes. So the idea is the original study maybe used a sample size of 20 participants Mm -hmm. or something like that and used, you know, null hypothesis significance testing. Mm -hmm. And so they found an effect. And so, you know, they were able to publish it. And so we're reading it and we're wondering, oh, should we try to replicate this study? And we try to come up with our sample size for the the replication study. But oftentimes we don't have a very good idea of what the original study really found. Because the smaller the sample size, the more that sampling error and imprecision plays into the effect size. Mm -hmm. And the more that uh, publication bias has an effect on what we read as the effect size in the study. Right. So in what you've said so far, it's making me think about the problem or challenges associated with replication as partly coming from the original study, but also partly coming from the study that's attempting to do the replication, whatever we mean by replication. And can you partition that a little bit so we can think about it from both sides? 
Sure. So I will just take the most common way to replicate a study, which is we read an original study. We'll say it's been published and it pops up in the literature. You know, it reports, let's say, a t-test and it reports Cohen's D and it says it found, you know, a large effect size, something like that. And now we want to, in a new sample, for some reason, maybe we're a part of a large scale replication project or the study was done from another lab and we just want to see if we can replicate the results. The way um, that a lot of people had previously powered or planned their sample size for the replication study was two different ways. First of all, it was really common to use the exact same sample size as the original study. Mm -hmm. This made sense from some sort of logical level because in replication, we're often trying to reproduce as much as we can about the original study. We want to use the same measures, try to use similar participants and things like that. Planetary alignment. Yes. (laughs) So we're trying to make it as similar as possible. And so a lot of studies assumed that the original study sort of set a standard for the sample size in their particular area or their field. Some of the replication projects, and most notably the uh, open science framework where they tried to replicate 100 studies, what they would do is they would use the effect size that was reported in the original study as sort of an estimate or a proxy for what they expected to see in the replication study. Mm -hmm. The idea is we already have data on this same effect, and we're proposing to replicate this effect. So we're going to do a power analysis in advance and assume that the true effect size is what was reported in the original study. Mm-hmm. And there would be nothing wrong with that if the original study effect size came from a very powerful study. Because if that effect size came from a powerful study, we would have a very narrow confidence interval around it. And we would have minimal uh, publication bias, which is that idea where we're kind of funneling in only statistically significant studies. And so we're missing this huge number of non-significant studies. But the problem is with many studies and the sample sizes that they've been using, we cannot separate those two issues from the value of the effect size that we see. So when we try to use this for our replication study, we use G power, mm-hmm. you know, SAS proc power, and it tells us we need 50 participants, something like that. And so we go ahead and we say, well, we have 80% power. And now our replication study didn't find the effect. So it's a failure. Mm -hmm. Well, the reality is our statistical power is really based on the population or the true effect size. Mm -hmm. And if that is lower than the effect size that we use in the power analysis, we actually have much lower power than we think we do. So now we have an underpowered original study and a perhaps unknowingly underpowered replication study. This also pops up with other types of replication. One of the other ways to replicate a study is to think about the effect size Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about is it significant or not. It's been shown that with just two studies, if you try to show a difference in effect size or a similarity in effect size across two studies, the power of the original study is very limiting in that. So often, even if you try to use a really large sample size in the replication study, the power for the difference in effect sizes can be uh, very much limited by issues in the original study. Hmm. So I think we have to think broader than just replication Mm -hmm. if we want to come out of this crisis. And we have to think about our original studies that hopefully, you know, people will eventually think are important and want to replicate those. You've got uh, solo papers in psych methods and you've got a wonderful paper in psych methods with Scott and an equally wonderful one in MBR with Scott. But just this year, you had a psych methods paper on the misinterpretation of (laughs) p-values that I loved. (laughs) I learned a ton from that paper because I hadn't drilled in deeper about, well, what is the relation between p-value and the actual probability of the null and the probability of the alternative and things like that. Given everything that you just said, talk to us a little bit about the role the p-value itself plays in this entire endeavor. I am not (laughs) anti-p-value completely. So I know you had Roy Levy on, and I think Bayesian statistics are great. 
But despite the fact that I like to criticize the p-value often, I don't hate it, hate it completely. But I think a lot of this, a lot of these issues we have stem from the fact that we rely almost exclusively on p-values. Everything is based on the p-value. A replication is a failure if the p-value is 0.06, but it's a success if the p-value is 0.049. And all of these issues of power come into play because power directly relates to the fact that we need to find this statistically significant p-value. But the paper that you're referring to talked about another possible aspect contributing to the replication crisis, which is namely that not all these effects we're trying to replicate may be true positive effects. What I did in that paper is, you know, I made some assumptions, but I looked at p-values just under 0.05 and then just under 0.01 and a few other alpha levels. And there was an article that came out a couple years ago that found a peculiar prevalence of p-values just below (laughs) 0.05. And so we see a lot of p-values like 0.048, 0.045, kind of in that range. They talked about publication bias and potentially some p-hacking or things going on that that created that sort of spike in p-values in that range. But I thought it would be interesting to say, if we see a p-value in this range, if we're reading a study in the literature that shows this, what should we make of that? How different is that probability from the probability the null is true? And I think a lot of, you know, methodologists do know that p-values do not signal the probability the null is true. But I thought it would be interesting to explore how big that discrepancy is, Mm. because it was certainly a lot bigger than I had expected. And so I used some Bayes' theorem type math, but I showed that for these p-values just under 0.05, in many cases, it was more likely that the null hypothesis was true, Mm -hmm. then it was false. So this probability that we should expect to be really strong evidence against the null was actually popping up as being more likely that there was no effect. This depended on sort of the true effect size. This depended on the prior probability of the null hypothesis. This depended on how many tests we conducted. So if you guys were talking about the family-wise alpha level, mm-hmm. we run a bunch of uncorrected tests. That type of decision made the results look a lot worse for p-values. And similarly, the Bayes factors showed similar results. So oftentimes, these statistically significant p-values were at best weak evidence mm-hmm. favoring the alternative hypothesis. Something that I brought up is... Well, we're trying to replicate these studies, but depending on what the p-value is and what the power is and all sorts of these other issues of the original study, we might be trying to replicate something that maybe doesn't always exist in the first place. Now, to be fair, I don't think this is happening all the time. I don't think that the literature is just covered in false positives or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think in psychology, we study things that are very difficult to to measure adequately and to really get at. And so it's possible that not everything that we read in the literature is as strong of an evidence favoring the alternative hypothesis as, as we might believe it to be. Let me follow that up. It feels relevant what the likelihood is of the null hypothesis in the first place. Where do you sit on that and how does that factor into all this? So I know that people will argue about sort of the subjectivity of Bayesian statistics. And one of the features of that is prior probabilities. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we have this previous expectation based on the extent of the literature preceding our study, on, you know, how likely we believe our hypotheses to be true. And then we try to update that with our new data. And previous looks at the p-value Uh, essentially assumed prior probabilities of 0.5. And this is an absolutely fair place to start. Mm -hmm. If you don't really know anything, perhaps you decide, yeah, it's about a 50-50 chance that the null is true versus the alternative is true. I don't really have anything else to, to base this on. But I was thinking about different types of studies and where they fall along that continuum. So we can have very exploratory studies where they're in the very early phases of that And maybe we assume 
for some of those studies that the null is going to be true. And so the prior probability for the null hypothesis is very high. Or we could be in a very confirmatory area where we've seen lots of evidence before for the alternative, hopefully with smaller p-values than 0.045. And so we might assume, no, I think it's not very likely the null is, is true. And uh, the 50% probability comes in the medical literature. Often they do decide that whether a treatment works or doesn't work is about a 50-50 chance. So I think we can reasonably, depending on the knowledge we have of our particular area, we can reasonably give different prior probabilities to the null hypothesis. But what I was finding is, of course, surprising findings are sometimes the ones where it's most likely that the null hypothesis is true, Mm -hmm. because this is where that prior was really high for the null hypothesis in the first place. Mm -hmm. And these surprising findings are often the ones that we most want to replicate. So we read this and we think, uh, you know, there was a study that showed that reading words that sounded old made people walk slower out of the classroom. (laughs) <laughs> that would be a study that I would find pretty surprising. In the extreme case, we could think of the BEM ESP studies, where he showed evidence for extrasensory perception. And so those are the ones that are getting picked for these replication studies very often. But my results were showing that when the prior was sort of in favor of the null hypothesis, of course, it's harder for one study to really update those prior odds. And so in those cases, it was often still very likely, mm-hmm. even after a significant p-value, that the the null hypothesis was true. One thing I was really intrigued about in your p-value paper, and for listeners, Greg and I cannot recommend highly enough to go read these papers of Samantha's as they are absolutely remarkable, but you raise multiplicity. The thing that Greg and I talked about was you'll get pistol whipped if you do all possible comparisons on a five-level one-factor ANOVA but you can have an SEM with 30 parameters and nobody will bat an eye. I'm so excited about this this topic. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, there's nothing there. Yeah, it's <laughs> crap. All we did is just crap is what oh we God. talk about. So tell us why you get excited about that. Well, you brought up a really important point about the ANOVA versus SEM regression literature in that it's more common. I wouldn't say it's always done, but if we're doing an ANOVA, you know, we want to do some pairwise comparisons. Oh, we use SPSS and we print out the Tukey, you know, the Tukey tests. But in the regression SEM literature, nobody does any sort of correction. Nobody talks about it. The textbooks don't talk about it. So what I'm working on right now is thinking about multiple comparisons in regression or tests of multiple predictors and whether we should be doing some sort of adjustment for that based on our planning in advance, which coefficients we expect to be significant, or if we're in that harking scenario, which is very common, where we run a, re- run a regression and, oh, X2 popped up as significant. What story can we tell from, from that? Mm-hmm. So I do think it's interesting that multiple testing comes in in a lot of different areas. Multiple dependent variables is what I looked at in the paper that you're referencing. But depending on the area we're in, it's either pretty common to address it or it's not common at all. And really, there might not be as much of a difference between how much the type 1 error rate goes up if we're in the ANOVA context versus the SEM context, which you point out, we're, we're testing multiple paths for significance. So there has been a little bit of work in SEM uh, with Bonferroni type corrections that could be done. But I think an uphill battle is going to be convincing people that they maybe need to do something when we already have low power (laughs) in our field. And now it's like you have to do these extra corrections, which can lower your power even more. But in the paper, I was focusing on multiple dependent variables, Mm -hmm. which is very common. I've seen it myself. And the idea is, you know, we could have multiple measures of depression. We could have the CESD and the BDI and maybe an interview. And we end up testing all three of those. And if one of them pops up significant, Gelman has noted that we often have this sort of post hoc reasoning for that in sort of thinking that the measure is more accurate or we found a better way to reduce the noise with that particular measure. So in the in the p-values paper, of course, the more tests that we conducted, 
without doing any sort of correction for that, the more likely it was that the null hypothesis was true. You alluded to something in your when you first lit up at Patrick's mention of this. You alluded to some differentiation between paths or parameters for which you have specific a priori expectations and maybe are almost in a more confirmatory mode with respect to those versus those that you would consider more exploratory. Do you view those differently with regard to error control? I don't have a great answer to this yet, but it's something that I have been thinking about very carefully. Mm -hmm. And part of that has to do with what we consider to be a family, (laughs) how much correction we need to do. And I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, every study you should use Bonferroni and you Mm -hmm. should correct for everything. I think we need to think more carefully about, like you said, where we fall on that confirmatory, exploratory spectrum. And of course, to to report that and be clear about that in our analyses. But uh, Scott Maxwell has shown that, of course, the power for like one particular regression coefficient differs from the power of any, finding any regression coefficients. And of course, that can extend to type one errors. So, you know, the type one error rate in considering we have hypothesized this one predictor, you know, we want to see if stress predicts depression and we are focusing on that we may not need to consider as strong of a correction as whether we've just kind of plugged some different predictors in and we want to see what pops up as predicting depression. Unfortunately, it's hard to tell whether researchers did, uh, unless they pre-register, whether they did hypothesize these specific predictors in advance or whether they looked at the results and even if they had specific hypotheses, did those change when they saw like, oh, this other predictor, we thought it might just be a covariate, but it seems important. So now we're going to talk about it. And I don't think that's people are trying to be dishonest or anything. I think when we see results, we expect that the data can tell us some sort of story and kind of lead us in the right direction to go next. But I think when we are doing exploratory tests like that and we treat them as if they were confirmatory, that causes a lot of these issues with multiplicity. Right now, I'm sort of thinking that if we are in a phase where we don't really know what we're looking at, perhaps we should be considering stronger adjustments versus other cases when something like the false discovery rate correction, for example, might be more appropriate because that has higher power than these family-wise error control procedures. It's funny to hear you say these things. I mean that in a good way, because with regard to exploratory kinds of procedures, I have heard compelling arguments on both sides that we shouldn't control because we're trying to get a sense of a landscape, we're trying to understand things, and that science has a way of working itself out with replication, versus you don't want to find meaning in things that are random. About, let's see, in 1999, I happened to have a paper on a Chaffee procedure for post hoc model modifications, where I proposed a particular critical value that would control the type 1 error rate across all possible modifications in the universe that you could make to a particular model. And, and it got accepted, and that's fine. It even got built into the software EQS, which was lovely. But the, the practical word on the street was that it was way too conservative. And one argument is that, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's conservative, you know, but the other side is, but then you won't find things. In our, and, and I don't know what the right answer is. Uh, that's a really great point, because I don't think that there necessarily is a right answer. One thing I'd point out is, like, I agree that replication should be sort of this self-correcting process. And, oh, if we find a fluke, you know, because we haven't used a conservative enough procedure oh, that'll even out over time. But I think we've seen that that isn't happening. You know, Mm -hmm. the original findings kind of stick. And replications, Mm -hmm. until we have multiple replication studies on a topic, we often don't really know what's going on for years and years and years. But I do think coming up with the consequences of making the two types of errors is important. And I think that's something that we talk about in like undergrad initial stats courses. You know, you make that little box about type one error and power. And then I think we kind of forget about it. But I do think there are areas where we could argue we really do need to get something out and we need to be a little bit more relaxed because there could be really severe consequences if we don't get this finding out. 
But in other cases, perhaps we do want to take a more conservative approach and say, we're going to wait and make sure this is practically speaking, a large effect before we start talking about it. And I think as researchers, we always want to be in the other situation because we'd rather get a publication out of something. But I don't think there's a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Either be really conservative or really liberal with your adjustments. And of course, those who do Bayesian would Mm -hmm. argue like, they don't even have this problem of multiplicity. And uh, when we're working with p-values, that's kind of one of the, the things that we have to deal with. Greg and I have talked on prior episodes about how exploratory factor analysis isn't really exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis isn't really confirmatory. And as long as you can get your head around that, you'll be perfectly fine. Talk to us about researcher degrees of freedom and the role that plays in all of this. Oh, so I love researcher degrees of freedom. I was thinking to myself, I have to be always on the good side of this and encouraging people to think carefully about the decisions they make and not try to make their p-value significant. But I thought to myself, it'd be really nice, like if you're on a diet and you get a cheat day, you know, if there was just a day where I could just go in and do a bunch of p-hacking, I think that would be really fun. (laughs) Get it out of your system. (laughs) Yeah. Wait till you're tenured and you can do that all day long. Every day's a cheat day post-tenure. And maybe that's contributing to the replication crisis. Mm -hmm. So it goes by many names, but we have uh, Researcher Degrees of Freedom, which I think is the more innocuous, nicer name. Mm -hmm. We also have the Garden of Forking Paths. Uh, (laughs) We have Questionable (laughs) Research Practices, which is a little, sounds a little bit worse. And then we have like (laughs) p-hacking. These are not always used the same across the literature. So different authors kind of have the terms that they use. Although I'm working with a student on a paper and the student said, well, I think we could kind of differentiate some of these to be more severe things that everybody would agree are wrong versus decisions we actually have to make that could be sort of defensible. And so I kind of like the researcher degree of freedom terminology to be things that can still have a big impact in uh, how believable or trustworthy your results are but maybe aren't fueled by the same negative or sinister nature as p-hacking. So these are essentially all the choices that researchers have to make going through the design of their study and the analysis that can easily kick the p-value a little bit to the right or the left. So typically to make the p-value more significant than it should be. One of my favorite papers in 2011, Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson showed that just doing a couple of these researcher degrees of freedom, they could show that listening to certain music causes you to physically be older or younger. I, I can't remember the direction of the, of the effect. And so essentially they set up an ANOVA and then at some point they added a couple covariates after looking at the p-value. And then they collected a few more participants and then looked at the p-value again. And then they did like a subset analysis of just some of the participants. And with just a few of these decisions, they were able to make a completely ridiculous finding come up with a significant p-value. And this seems to be very, very common Some researchers uh, a couple years ago did a large survey of uh, academics and found that more than half admitted to several of these questionable research practices. So this idea of testing multiple variables and only reporting some of them was like 65% admitted to doing this. And most of them didn't think it was a problem at all. And so these decisions that we make are often not seen as very problematic, but the fact that we can collect a few more participants and kind of take advantage of some sampling error there, you know, oh, we happen to get three participants that show really strong effects individually. And now we stop when we get the significant p-value. That's been seen as a contributor to to the replication crisis. This idea that these effects that we're seeing in the literature weren't done purely through these nice confirmatory methods. They were somewhat exploratory, masquerading as confirmatory studies. 
And so I think trying to be more transparent about what we're doing and what decisions we're making is one of the best things to have come from all of this. Mm-hmm. But I personally, I'm, I've done a pre-registration and it's hard. It's really hard to, to predict out all the tests you're going to do. And if you find, you know, this effect, how are you going to follow that up? And how are you going to treat missing data and all of these issues? I can see how difficult it is to really think through these things at the start of the study. But I think that's incredibly important to be more thoughtful rather than just having no plan. Kind of like this podcast. <laughs> and kind of meandering through our Ouch. study. Hey. <laughs> You know what? We need podcast pre-registration. <laughs> We'd be dead, Greg. Yeah. We'd have to just quit. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but in one of your papers, you said something like meta-analysis is the gold standard of replicability. And I was intrigued by that. First, mm-hmm. well done on taking a stand. I think our entire field just hems and haws and conditions. And it might be argued, I have heard some people say, I just like how you doubled down. And it was like, that is the gold standard. Let me be a little bit argumentative on that, as I'm never, ever going to take a stand against meta-analysis. It's hugely important. But I've dabbled in integrative data analysis in which you try to leverage the joint sample by pooling over multiple independent samples. And not only do you have all the obvious advantages, but one of the things that we've long argued is you potentially, and I'm stressing potentially, you potentially have a direct effect of study-specific moderators of effects. And so when I read some of the more histrionic horse race-like, we replicated the study and didn't find a significant effect, we should disband psychology, I think, but wait, couldn't you combine those into a formal test of why the effect is different. What is your thinking on that? So I completely agree with you. I think that quote was referring more to the spirit of combining multiple studies over time. And I think integrative data analysis fits very nicely within that overall multiple study, whether we literally combine the data and try to align on different variables or whether it's some sort of meta-analytic strategy where we're, we're working with the effect sizes and the variability. I think it's been shown that one replication study isn't enough, and oftentimes the original study is what's taken as the gold standard. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's enough to just conduct one replication study. I think with all of the power issues that can even come in from one replication study, we need to be thinking bigger picture here. And you bring up a really important point about moderators of the effect or thinking more about variability rather than expecting everything to be the same. Mm-hmm. There's a really great paper by uh, McShane and Bockenholt called uh, You Can't Step Into the Same River Twice. And the idea is these effects that we're replicating may not literally be the same effect. There may be some sort of hidden moderators there even when we're trying to make them identical, and we think that we're making them identical, these small differences in who the participants are and who the experimenters are and what time of day can end up leading to variability above and beyond just the sampling variability. Pat Shrout had a really interesting idea of sort of looking at the effect size space and thinking about what aspects can make the effect larger versus smaller, which is kind of in a way thinking about those moderators and designing studies purposely to sort of zoom in onto different features of this effect size space. Can we recreate the conditions where the effect is the largest? And then can we systematically vary different features to see how the effect size is is variable? And you are much more of an expert on integrative data analysis than I am. But I think that has a very similar spirit of seeing, you know, what features are impacting what, what, what we see for the effect size, for example, or, or whether this finding is coming up. And I think being able to sit with a little more uncertainty and variability about our effects rather than just, oh, this exists or it doesn't, is the direction that I think would be really helpful for the field to, to move in. It makes replication something beyond a dichotomous event 
right? It, it really is more like understanding the space where you might reach similar conclusions with regard to significance, where you might reach similar conclusions within some sort of interval with regard to effect sizes, and where you really wouldn't expect to, right? Given the contextual factors. When Patrick and I talked about moderation in a previous episode, one of the images that I always have in my mind is this control panel of knobs that represents all of the different things that are going on, all the settings that the world has, some of which you have control over and, and some of which you don't. And it would be nice to envision a time where we could pull back and say, it's not a yay or nay kind of thing in the end. It's really just understanding that sometimes when we replicate, we're standing in the river at a different point in time or at a different location where we enter the river. I like that very much. One thing I try to hammer home with all my students, grad and undergrad, is respect sampling variability, that things just differ. And I have these little problem sets where I have them generate a single bivariate correlation at a sample size of 50 and do it 20 times. And if you do that task yourself, you'll never do research again. <laughs> <laughs> because they're all over hell's half acre. Mm -hmm. They're negative, they're positive, they're zero. And one thing, Samantha, that we really prize on this podcast <laughs> is our social support and emotional support in this. And that falls firmly under the, yeah, tough crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's research. That's measurement. That's sampling variability. Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. You get what you get. So I, I like that. It's, it's, it's like crossing the streams of sampling variability with moderators. Can you condition out some of that sampling variability a little bit more into signal and noise to try to understand not is there an effect, but under what conditions is the effect stronger and under what conditions is the effect weaker? And it would be really nice if we could organize this all really nicely, have a website with topics where everything in psychology that had been carefully replicated, you could really learn about all of this. But I think right now, you know, except for some of these multi-site replication studies that are here and there, we haven't done a great job of sort of organizing this thinking to be a little bit more big picture. Maybe that's a good pivot point. Tell us a little bit about if you were queen of the world and could implement a five-year plan in helping us move toward a stronger position as a science, what would you do? Oh, that's great. I, I, I love talking about all the problems. I don't always have all the, all the solutions, which is probably why I will never be queen of anything. But <laughs> You'll be a good mother-in-law eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that. Um, <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> So I think there have been a lot of thoughtful discussions generated. Uh, I don't always agree with everything I read that's been written on the replication crisis, but I think it's really important that the field is having this discussion now. Sometimes I wonder, you know, is replication being overdone? Are we talking about it too much? But then I'll read something that brings a new perspective to it. And so I think continually having this debate across Bayesians and frequentists and, you know, people in the data mining exploratory fields is really helpful in thinking, what are these decisions we can make that can start moving us forward? And so I think we can categorize these as being a sort of general statistical things we can do and maybe policies that extend more specifically to replication studies. So I think statistically speaking, I'm a power person. So I would say we have to be taking more time to carefully and adequately power our original studies, our replication studies, mm -hmm. what have you. Um, and if we are going to be using any sort of sample estimates or pilot data estimates in our power analysis, we have to be thinking about that sampling error and that sampling variability and potentially publication bias and potentially even that variability beyond sampling error, those moderators, we have to take that into account when we're powering our, our studies. Of course, thinking about multiple comparisons, thinking about p-values, what should we re be reporting in addition to p-values? I really like the camp that says p-values should just be one piece of evidence in mm -hmm. an entire suite of evidence that we report. 
So it's not necessary to necessarily ban the p-value completely. Um, I know there is a journal that's done that and is taking <laughs> that approach. But I think the p-value has been sort of this very prominent, it dictates our every move. And thinking about what multiple studies can offer, what uh, sensitivity analyses can offer, what confidence intervals can offer, and different effect size measures offer, and Bayes factors, even if we're not going to be doing a completely Bayesian analysis, perhaps we can make some uh, assumptions and, and report Bayes factors for our results. And then on the more practical sort of editorial idea, it's been argued that this transparency open science movement is especially helpful, not just so that other people can try to recreate our analyses, but also to make us more thoughtful. Mm. I can't tell you the number of times that I'm brought into something and they've already like done the study and now they need help with something. And it's, <laughs> it would be a lot more helpful if I was there to help with the design phase. I think... We love to jump into our fancy SEM models and, and everything like that. And sometimes we forget about these early steps in the, in the design process. Um, I know some journals have stricter policies now, both in terms of requiring power analysis or certain sample sizes, emphasizing replications, you know, providing extra badges and things like that for conducting replications. But again, that's where I feel like the one size fits all isn't necessarily the way to go. Some people have pointed out how these new rules that we have sort of counteract uh, sort of the tenure process or mm -hmm. the idea that these young assistant professors now have to do all these extra steps at the beginning of their analysis. And I don't think that's a reason not to do these things whatsoever. But I think we need to be careful and balance if we're creating these stricter guidelines or these higher bars Perhaps we, need, we should be doing less research overall and just making sure that our research is more carefully and thoughtfully planned. And then I, I always like to emphasize the idea of multi-site studies, multiple replications, you know, integrative data analysis, thinking about science as more of a process and a longer, bigger picture way of, of seeing the world rather than this sort of siloed approach where... I conduct a study. Okay, that one's done. Now I move on to my next study. Okay, maybe someone should try to replicate that study. Mm -hmm. So thinking more thoughtfully about where an effect is largest, where an effect is smallest, where it's important to study the effect, you know, which populations are more important to focus on. And then, of course, just thinking about these researcher degrees of freedom. Again, that, that goes along with the same idea of thinking thoughtfully and carefully about what we're doing. And I think at the very least, if we're more transparent, we can start to see the things that we're doing that have an effect. It's hard to see those things when it's just yourself. But when you're having to write those things for other people to read and possibly comment on, you can start to see, oh, maybe we need to come up with a better solution to this multiple testing idea, for example. We're going to be doing multiple tests, so maybe we need to come up with a way for it to be less problematic. I really love all of those points, but the last one I smiled to myself when you were saying it because I think in 10 or 15 years of doing integrative data analysis, the biggest impact it's had on me is being more thoughtful about my single sample models. And the reason is, is it's not until you have two samples that you combine that you're forced to start thinking about sampling design. Where does your measure appear in the battery? Geographically, where were the data collected? What year was it collected? And when you have a single study, all of those are fixed. And you don't even think about where you put your depression inventory in the battery. Did it come before the substance use items or did it come after the substance use items? You don't even think about that. But when you have three studies... Mm -hmm and two put it before the substance use items and one put it after, you lean back and you say, well, crap. Mm -hmm. So I am very intrigued by that point. But I really like your broader exit strategy because a lot of people will say, well, we just need to teach better. Well, this is because people don't understand what a p-value is. And I think you're weaving a very nice tapestry that that's part of it, but it's not just we need to change our curriculum. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that teaching can help. I mean, my students, they tell me like, why do you spend a whole week on p-values at the beginning of the semester? It's like, these are important. You're going to be using them. <laughs> You'll whether, thank you know, me later. <laughs> and I know there was a study that came out that said like, 80% or something of undergrad stats books define the p-value yeah. incorrectly or something. Teaching these design things is something that, that we could be doing better. Students always want to jump right into SEM, but I like to focus on the building blocks, like considering model comparisons, which are important in SEM, but considering them in a more basic level so that we can understand the bigger picture of what we're doing. I don't think just teaching these things more will solve everything because as soon as they leave our classes, then they go and they pee hack away. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the notion that an old dog can learn new tricks because I can interpret a p-value correctly. But I read your site methods paper on p-values and I had no idea that there was that relation between the p-value and mm. the inability to have any kind of understanding about the probability of either the null or the alternative. Part of it is let's all take a step back and think about how these things unfold in very subtle and very complicated ways. Absolutely. These things continue to surprise me. And I think especially when we're involved in substantive research, we kind of get lost in the intricacies of that. And I think it's easy to forget these sort of bigger picture items and things that we don't even think about that end up mattering. And especially, I mean, in psychology, we don't have that ability to control things as carefully as other sciences like physics. We're working with things where the ordering of a questionnaire can have an impact on our results, whereas not, not every science has to deal with these types of issues. Missing data, right? Our participants leave us <laughs> and we have to decide what to do with their remaining scores. That doesn't happen in sciences where you can just use bacteria growing on Petri dishes and things like that. So I think we have a lot of unique challenges in the behavioral sciences. And so it makes this particularly hard. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a too pessimistic outlook. I think we really are improving and thinking about these things and we'll continue to, to move forward in a positive direction. So then I'm getting the sense that the word crisis maybe was an overstatement, a useful overstatement in the sense that it sounded alarms that got people talking and that was a very positive outcome. But if, and I never remember if it's DEFCON 5 or DEFCON 1 that is the highest level. Patrick, do you know which, which one it is? I don't. Okay. Well, so it doesn't matter. If we move to DEFCON 3, because I know that's in the middle either way, is there a better word that we could replace crisis with now? Is it replication blank or do you want to keep crisis there? Uh, if crisis is going to keep people interested in this, then we might need to keep it mm -hmm. level red. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, if we wanted to soften things, we could use dilemma okay. because it's something that we should be thinking and talking about different strategies about uh -huh. the replication dilemma. <laughs> I like it. And you didn't use air quotes when you said that. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patrick, just people taking a test in 21 and a half minutes. So there is so much more that I want to talk to you yeah. about this. I haven't even touched on some of the things I'm interested in. But right now, there is a room full of highly anxious undergrads that you have made anxious personally on these very issues. I believe in supporting the next generation, which, as Greg sang for us on a prior episode, is a mathematical necessity. <laughs> We are going to let you go and check on the kids who are, as we speak, conducting chefet adjustments for multiplicity. Thank you so much. Very much. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours about this, and we so appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us for a little bit. Thanks so much, Samantha. It was really fun to chat about this. You guys are great. <laughs> now go relieve those poor kids from their chefet anxieties. You guys have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, couponers. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go for the unbridled excitement of a Quantitative Methods podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally... 
You can get crazy cool Quantitude merch on redbubble.com where all proceeds go to donorschoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the Wookiee planet for all you lonely Chewbaccas out there. Today's episode was sponsored by Multivariate Outliers, the only place where being a little above average on multiple things can make you truly outstanding. And by Mahalanobis Distance, now required to be greater than six feet or two meters at all times. And finally, by assumption checking, where you use a mathematically rigorously derived statistic to create a plot, which you then just stare at and say, I don't know, looks okay to me. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>